Our text today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. For I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the spirit who inspired Paul to write these words and for the spirit who preserved them for us. Now by that same spirit, lead us into truth. May every word that is said, may everything be clear and articulate and true. Deliver us from anything that's not helpful. Please deliver us from every distraction and may our thoughts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What is the point of eating and drinking together? When we eat, we normally don't retreat for our three meals a day. We don't retreat to our private cells uh, to eat in solitude. We normally, ordinarily, like eating together, and we like drinking together. Why do we like to grab lunch with friends or take our sweetheart out to dinner or to go get coffee with someone that we enjoy spending time with or to have drinks? Why does the Little League team go out for uh, pizza and ice cream after the season is over? Why does every wedding have food? And why do funerals include a reception with those little sandwiches that are known as funeral sandwiches. They've even got a sandwich for the funeral. Why, why are these things associated together? Why are, why are holidays always known by the special meals that you eat on those, on those days? Turkey at Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe you have special traditions around Christmas. Uh, ham or, or something else for Christmas dinner. Why do you want a hot dog on the 4th of July? Why is that so important? and an important part of the celebration. There is no biological necessity for us to eat and drink in the same place at the same time as other people. Our, 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 our digestion may or may not be helped by conversation. So why do we do it and why do we seem to celebrate uh, only if there's food and drink involved. And if there's not food and drink there, it's not really, uh, it's not really fun. It's not really a celebration. It's because a table with food and drink on it has always been a point of fellowship and relationship and for the renewal or the restoration of friendship. If you're at odds with somebody or if there's someone that you want to get to know, it's, it's very common to say, you know what, we ought to grab lunch. There's something about sitting across the table from someone, sharing food together that lowers the temperature, it raises our ability to talk and to communicate and to get to know each other. The family dinner table is a place of reconnection. As you've gone your separate ways during the day, you've been your, on your separate adventures, you come back together at the end of the day to refresh your relationship to each other, to get caught up, and you do it over food. Once again, you're not doling out plates for everybody to go back to their own corner of the house to eat in solitude. You eat together at the table to get caught up together, to share life together. And there's something to it by eating things together. We become one. We share in this life-giving food 
together and we share the joy in this good thing. Oh my goodness, taste this good thing that mom made tonight. Isn't this good? Isn't this sweet? Isn't this, isn't this nourishing and, and delicious? We get to enjoy these things together and they say, you are what you eat and if that's true, then we become the same by eating the same loaf of bread. If I eat the bread and you eat the bread and I'm becoming whatever this bread is making me and you're becoming whatever this bread is making you, then we're sharing in this life together. Or the same skillet of sloppy joes. I become sloppy joe and you become sloppy joe. We're all sloppy joes together. Or whatever that we're eating, whatever we're enjoying together, we're both deriving the same life and nourishment from this thing that we enjoy, or even from the same bottle of wine that we drink together. This thing nourishes my body in a particular way, and you as well. And we're both given life and strength and joy from the same source. And this is why, this is why celebrations go with eating good food, because one of the most significant ways that we give thanks to God is by enjoying the good things that he has given us and rejoicing in a way that, that gives us life through the works of human hands, enjoying good bread and wine and meats and cheeses and cakes and pies. These things are all cultivated under human labor and skill and craftsmanship. Every good thing that we enjoy requires a million providences of God, a million blessings of God to get from the earth to our mouths. And we give praise and thanks to God for every step across the way when we enjoy it. We give God thanks when we enjoy his good gifts together with hearts of gratitude. And so we find in the scriptures that when God deals with men, there's frequently food at the center of God's interactions with mankind. In the garden, he set up two trees for food, one that they could eat immediately and another uh, that they would have to wait to eat, one that gave them life and communion and fellowship with God, the tree of life, and one which was going to be theirs later if they exhibited patience and maturity. But the fruit trees were at the center of what it meant to obey and maintain covenant with God. After the flood, Noah drank wine and he rested in the new creation on the other side of the flood and God gave Noah the world to eat as a sign of his favor and blessing. God told Noah, every creeping thing on the earth is good for food. That includes crawfish and those are so good. There's a creeping thing that tastes good. If you haven't tried one, you need to try a crawfish because God told Noah he could eat them and, uh, and I take him up on that. That's good. When God delivered the people from Egypt, he gave them a Passover meal. He gave them a meal as a memorial of his deliverance uh, uh, from Egypt through, through the Red Sea. He gave them a meal for their continual memorialization of that. In, in the liturgy of the tabernacle, the peace offering was a symbolic meal where the worshiper ate from the animal that was on the altar the priest ate of that same animal, and then the smoke rose to the heavens so that God smelled the sweet sacrifice. And so there, God and worshiper and priest communed together over this, this sacrifice. Uh, There's also grain and wine poured on the altar in the tribute offering. At the center of right worship throughout the scriptures, there is food and the sharing of food and the eating of it and drinking of wine. 
Often we find that people in the Bible will greet each other and they will find fellowship together around food. Melchizedek brings bread and wine to Abraham. When Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau, that was attended by food and, and wine. Isaac had wine there as well. David comes to Saul's house for the first time and he doesn't come empty-handed. He comes bearing bread and wine. You kind of you feel naked if you show up to somebody's house without something in your hand, right? You want to bring something. It's ordinarily bread or wine or both. There's something good about bringing bread and wine. And that's what David brings to Saul's house. He brings bread and wine. And many other places in the Bible, you see that peace is made between man and man and between God and man with food. And very often it's bread and wine. When Abigail tries to save her house and her foolish husband, and she wants to placate David and his men, what does she bring? She brings a lot of food, but she, she brings bread and wine. So it's not surprised that when Jesus sits down with the disciples in the, in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion, that Jesus breaks out bread and wine, and he gives them a covenant memorial. He gives them a symbolic meal that's going, to, that's going to reflect the truth of the new covenant and their fellowship, their continuing fellowship with Jesus. He's going to go through the cross and the grave and the resurrection and the ascension, but they're going to continue to eat and drink with him through this symbolic meal that he gives them. So Jesus gave his church this ritual meal, which has the cultivated products of human labor at the Lord's table, we don't have apples and water. We don't have things that you can find in nature. We have things that are the products of a lot of labor, bread and wine, things that require some skill to make. God approves and sanctifies of human labor at his table week by week as he blesses us with the work that, that we have done. He blesses us and sanctifies and sets it apart and gives it back to us. He gives us bread, which is for strength. Bread, which is uh, something you normally eat at the beginning of the day. Usually many people, most people, eat something um, carby in the morning, right? You eat some form of bread, either cereal or a bagel or a toast or a donut or a Pop-Tart. Those are all breads. You, you start the day with bread in some way. You start the day with bread, um, and then you end the day with wine. You don't start the day with wine, Unless you have toddlers, you may start the way with, <laughs> with wine. That may be a good way to start the day. Um, but usually, ordinarily, you save wine for the end of the day. You save wine for after your work is finished. And so Jesus at his table gives us bread, which is strength for the work that is still ours to do, the work that's ahead of us. And at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the supper, we drink wine, which are, is our rest from our works, our rest in his works, and our peace and fellowship with him. So we have both bread for strength and wine for rest here at this, at this table. And so Jesus sets up this covenant meal as a point for us to celebrate his victory, as a point of union and communion between his people. This is our fellowship with each other. And it's also a point of us renewing our covenant with the triune God around this memorial that he has established. In this act, week by week, in this act of coming into God's presence and eating real bread and drinking real wine together, this is our preeminent symbol of our unity together and our identity with Christ. Last week, we studied what we believe about baptism, which is the sign and seal of our entry to the covenant, the entry of our relationship to Jesus. This week, we're studying what we believe about the Lord's Supper, 
which is a sign and seal of the renewal of that covenant week by week, a renewal and a refreshment of our relationship to the Lord Jesus. And it's at this table where that relationship with the Lord is continually confirmed and refreshed, where we actually eat together with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not descend bodily. There's not some magical thing that happens to the bread or the wine. It remains bread and wine. The body of Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he doesn't leave there until his enemies are made his footstool, Psalm 110 says. So Jesus does not descend bodily, but we ascend to him by the Spirit. When you say we lift our hearts up to the Lord, it's as if we're all ascending together into the heavenlies to worship before his throne. So we ascend in the Spirit to eat with Jesus uh, spiritually. But this covenant memorial, which was given to us by the Lord for our peace and unity, has so often become a point of confusion and contention. There are whole branches of the church that will not commune together, and they won't admit you to the Lord's table if you show up to worship with them. They will turn you away if you're not one of, one of them. The communion table has become, sadly, ironically, a place of division in the body of Christ. And it didn't take very long in church history for it to get that way. Of course, sin messes up everything. And if there's anything that Satan would love to destroy, it's the thing that marks our unity with each other and with God. And so very early on, before the New Testament is even completed, churches were having trouble at the Lord's table. The Lord's table was not a place of rest and peace and unity, but it was a place of contention and stress and anxiety. Bad behavior at the communion table is one of the major defects in the fellowship of the church in Corinth, which Paul addresses in his first epistle to them, his first letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Paul has nothing good to say about what the um, Corinthians are doing at the Lord's table. He has no commendation for their bad table manners. In verse 17, he says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So as he introduces the subject, he bookends it with his disappointment in the way that they're treating the Lord's table. Their behavior is quite frankly disgusting around the Lord's table. This communion meal, which ought to be the symbol and the seal of their oneness with each other and their oneness with Christ has become an occasion for them to highlight their factions and highlight their divisions and even to shame other people. One of the challenges in reading Paul's letters is, is that he often, as in these letters to the church in Corinth, he's answering questions or responding to situations in local churches, and we're only reading half the conversation. We don't have their correspondence to him. We have his letters 
to them. And so we have to piece together what's going on. And what appears to have been taking place here is that the celebration of the Lord's table wasn't confined to corporate worship in Corinth. But they practiced communion as part of their uh, community dinner parties. Think like a church picnic or a, or a church fellowship meal. And the reason uh, we think this is because of what he says in verse 20. He says, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and, and drink in? So it, it seems that what's going on here is that in these gatherings, there would have been a full meal served, and then at some point in the evening, they would set apart a particular loaf of bread and a particular cup of wine. They would give thanks and memorialize the Lord's death by eating and drinking that together. But there was a terrible uneasiness hanging over their practices because the sacrament of union and communion was celebrated in the context of status-seeking, selfishness, sectarianism, and overall, boorish behavior. It would have been very difficult to be at peace with what was happening here. Again, piecing together what, what Paul says. To put it in our context, imagine if we were to hold a uh, church picnic if we smoke a whole hog, we break out the most expensive beer and wine, we have you know, tables and chairs and white tablecloths and silverware, we make a really big uh, scene out of it. You know, you got centerpieces and good music and all this. But then there were folks show up from our church, there'd be folks show up that we would say, oh, whoa, 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 wait, hold on. Um, this isn't for you. This is not for you. Um, did you think this was for you? Because it's not. And you didn't bring anything? Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Nobody told you? Does this... This is, not, this is not for you, but there is a sheets down on the corner. And if you want to go down there and you can get a Slim Jim or you can get some uh, Vienna sausages or, I don't know, a Butterfinger or, you know, a, a fruit pie or something, get some water. And then you can come back down here and you can enjoy it with us. But, but this, is, this is for us. This is, not, this is not for you. And this is what Paul describes. One gets drunk and another goes hungry. One person is loaded up with all the wine and meat he can eat and drink, and the other one is without anything. Now, let's say in the middle of this scene that I just depicted, in the middle of this, someone breaks out bread and wine and thinks it's a really good idea to have communion now, right in the middle of this. The incongruity of this would give you whiplash. What? How is, how is this communion? How is this love for the body? And so in the Corinthians case, add to this the possibility that this, this fellowship meal was held on the Lord's Day, which nobody got off of work in uh, first century uh, Roman uh, Empire society. No, nobody got Sunday off of work, which is why in the early church, uh, they would worship early in the morning on the Lord's Day and they'd worship late at night. You gotta worship before you go to work and you worship in the evening. Again, you have evening prayers when everybody gets off of work. Uh, remember that time when Paul was preaching and he went on and went on so long, uh, there was a guy who fell asleep and fell out of the window. Uh, he fell out of the window or fell out of the loft? And um, remember that, well, it's because the guy had probably been working all day. He's working all day and Paul just keeps on, keeps on preaching. And uh, it reminds me, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's a very subtle difference between a long sermon and a hostage situation, um, <laughs> which... Uh, which I'm, I'm aware of, I, I know that. So, um, so Paul is preaching, the guy, the guy falls asleep. Well, that's because they had to go, they went to church after, after, after working all day. Uh, so if, imagine in this context, you were a slave who had to work all day and you don't get the day off 
And, and then now you get to the place where worship and fellowship are being held, but the party has already started. Everybody who doesn't have to work all day, all the rich and all the wealthy and all the affluent people don't have to work. And so when you get to worship, all the bread and all the wine has been consumed. And that's Paul's admonition when he says, you're not waiting on each other and you're not sharing what you have. In all of these ways, the church is demonstrating contempt for the body of Christ. They're not properly discerning the body of Christ in not caring about the least of these. And they're bringing shame on the poor in the community. And so Paul says it twice. He says, I do not praise you. I do not commend you. And so he goes on to remind them of what the Lord's Supper is all about to begin with. And this is the section I read just a minute ago, but listen to the simplicity of what the Lord Jesus does here. In verse 23, this is Paul relating what the Lord Jesus did. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What Jesus gives the church on the eve of his crucifixion is a simple ritual that we have spent the last 2,000 years working to complicate. As they were sitting together, Jesus took bread, Real bread, bread that, that they would have used for the Passover meal, real bread, not you know crackers, not, not wafers, not little bits of styrofoam, but real bread. He, he takes that real bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he gives it to the apostles. And the first man took that hunk of bread and he took a piece off and he handed it to the next man. And that man took the bread and took a piece off and passed it on. And then after they were finished eating, Jesus took the cup and the gospels tell us that he blessed it and he passed that cup around and they drank. They didn't, they didn't line up, they didn't kneel. Jesus didn't dip the bread in the wine. I mean, nothing says rejoicing in communion better than mushy, whiny bread, right? I mean, that's, if, if you've ever been around that, that's uh, really bad. Jesus didn't dip the bread in the wine. No, the wine cup was passed from one apostle to the next, to the next, to the next. He showed them what to do. And by the way, it's real wine. He used real wine and real bread. And he said, do this. He showed them what to do. And he said, do this. He didn't say, think about it. He didn't say, focus and concentrate on it. He said, do it. The grace imparted in the Lord's table is from doing it, not in thinking about it or theorizing about it or wondering about it, but in doing it and do it, he says, often. He uses the word often twice here. He says, as often as you drink this, do it as my memorial. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So often, I think, means often. And often means let's do it every Lord's day, every time we get together in worship. He also says, do it as my memorial. The translation that we're used to um, that I read just a minute ago in the New King James is do this in remembrance of me. And that's fine as, as long as we understand what we're saying there. Uh, because we might read that and might think do this in remembrance of me makes it sound like what we're doing is reflecting on the sacrifice of Jesus. Once again, moving this from a physical act of eating and drinking into an intellectual act that, that we're supposed to focus really intensely and to remember something. 
There's nothing wrong with reflecting on the work of Jesus. We do that all the time, and that's wonderful. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying to do here. So one good translation says, do this as my memorial, because there's all kinds of information in the Bible about what a memorial is. What is a memorial? Well, there are covenant memorials all throughout the Old Testament. The sacrifices described in Leviticus are memorials. For who? Not for Israel to remember something, but for God who sees the sacrifice. It is God who remembers. It is God who memorializes his covenant. Let me just read you a couple of these places in the Old Testament. In Numbers 10.10, we're reading about this context of of feasting and of sacrifices and of, of special celebrations and days. And we read, on the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder, not to you, listen, a reminder of you before your God. I am Yahweh your God. These sacrifices and these feast days and these temple rituals are memorials to God. There are more memorials of us before God. He gave them these signs and sacraments and feast days that just didn't serve only as reminders for his people, but for God. When God sets the rainbow in the heavens after the flood, he says, when I bring clouds over the earth and my bow is seen in the clouds, God says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. God says, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. The rainbow is for God to remember his work and his promises. We look at the rainbow and we say, oh yes, God has promised to not destroy the earth again. But God also looks at the rainbow and he looks at the earth through his promises. When Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry land, and they took a pile of rocks from the middle of the river and they set up a memorial on the side of the river. And they took a pile of rocks from the side of the river and made a memorial in the bottom of the river. And then the river closed back over the memorial. Who looks at that memorial down at the bottom of the river? Who can see it? Only God. And it's a memorial for God of the promises he made in delivering his people into this promised land. The memorial was for God. All of these Old Testament memorials, every time this language is used, it's for God to look at these memorials and say, oh yes, these are my people. These are my promises. This is my covenant. It's not because God forgets. It's not because God needs to tie a string around his finger or put a post-it note on his mirror or you know, set a reminder on his phone. It, it's not because God forgets. God doesn't need memorials because he's forgetful. God needs memorials and God puts memorials in place because God sees everything. He sees our sin. He sees our rebellion. He sees our hearts and our minds. He sees the trajectories of our wicked and foolish acts. And so he has chosen in his sovereignty to lay over the top of all of that, to lay over the world and to lay over all of us his rainbow. He, he's laid, oh, he looks at us through his covenant promises. He looks at us through the sacrifices. He looks at us through the blood of Jesus when he looks at his people. And so when the church gathers for communion, it's not 
necessarily that we have individual thoughts about the life and death of Jesus, but it's the sign of Jesus, it's the sign of the death of Jesus being set before God as a memorial of his covenant with us. So that we're eating this week by week, and the Lord says, oh yes, those are the people who are eating with my son. Those are the people who have bread and wine, and they're eating before me. Those are my people, and those are the people I'm in covenant with. It's like the blood posted over the doorpost that the angel of death passes over. We have this sign and seal of our covenant with God that he sees. He looks at it. It's his memorial that he sees, and he passes over judgment, and he comes to us in blessing uh, because of, of these, these signs and seals. So the Lord sees the sign, and he blesses us. He feeds us with Christ's body and blood by the Holy Spirit. We are nourished spiritually at the Lord's table with the work of Jesus. We show forth the Lord's death through this bread and wine, and God sees it, and we receive the benefits of it. Now, reminding the church of the gravity of the sacrament, of what they're doing, Paul calls them to sobriety. And so he says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged... We are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So those who are eating and drinking in this selfish way are sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. They're eating and drinking not blessing, but they're drinking judgment to themselves. It's not that they're desecrating the elements. They're not desecrating the bread and the wine. They're desecrating the body of Christ, the church. You see, the effect of the death of Jesus is to create one new humanity, one new nation, one new family. But by making divisions in the body of Christ, by trampling on the poor and the weak, they're doing the very things that Jesus died for. They're committing the sins that Jesus died for, and Jesus is not going to let that go unpunished. And so Paul boldly says, for this reason, because of your misbehavior at the table, many of you are sick and dying. That might sound strange to us, how bad behavior in one area might result in sickness in another area. But you see, Paul preaches that all of life is interlocked. Everything is intertwined. Individual behavior, belief, and practice can and does have results in other areas of our lives, including our health. So private unbelief, private idolatry, private sexual perversion, even if it's hidden and you think nobody else knows about it, nobody can see it, it has an impact on the whole body. Remember how Achan's sin brought defeat on all of Israel. It was a private sin and it brought defeat on everybody because of all of life is interconnected. So the call is to repent. Turn away from your sins, hate your sins. Your public behavior affects everybody around you, but so does your private behavior. So Paul says, when you come together, wait on each other. And for Christians in Corinth, a wise application would have been, we're going to make sure everybody's here. We're going to wait until everybody's off work. We're going to wait to the end of the day. Everybody can be there. 
If we're going to have communion, we need to make sure that the whole church is present. And then just to be sure, we're going to greet the poorest and the least and the weakest, and we're going to establish, and we're going to set them at the head of the table. We're going to make sure that nobody gets left out. You're going to eat first. And so we're all communing together. This is how we're going to discern the body of Christ. We're going to pay attention and love the least and the weakest of these. Now, sadly, over the last five to 800 years or so, these few verses have been wrenched out of the context of what Paul was specifically correcting, and they have been applied in such a way to turn communion into something that's primarily intellectual and internal, and it's only for a, a, a certain class of Christian. Because we have internalized it and over-spiritualized it, that's why it doesn't matter if you have real bread, and it doesn't matter if you have real wine, because this is just, a, it's just something, what's really important is what's going on in your heart. And of course, over the last three years, it even got more wacky and even more nonsense when churches were thinking, well, we can just do this at a distance and you just get whatever you have at home. I don't care, an Oreo and a Kool-Aid, whatever. And you can, because it doesn't matter. The elements doesn't matter because we've so Gnosticized all of this. We've made it all this intellectual, internal practice, and then only for a certain class of Christian. We've turned it into something that's exactly the opposite of what Paul was exhorting this church to do. Paul says, don't leave out the least of these. Make sure they get fed. If you exclude people, you're eating and drinking judgment. And then we read it and say, well, I kind of think there are all kinds of people who maybe ought not to come to the table, people otherwise in good standing with the church, but, but otherwise, let's go ahead and exclude some people. Um, let's, let's find some ways of dividing the church and keeping some away from it. And so today, throughout most of the Western church, in, in most of the branches of the Western church, um, there's this two-stage admittance to the sacraments. The Lutherans have a confirmation class when you're around middle school. Uh, the Roman Catholics, of course, have a, have a confirmation process. And most Reformed um, and, and Protestant and Presbyterian uh, branches of the church, you have to have an interview with the elders or an interview with the, um, with the consistory before you're admitted to the Lord's table. You're baptized as an infant, and, and then you're brought up to the point where it's believed at some point in there you can understand what's going on at the Lord's table. And then after you answer a few questions or you learn a catechism, you're admitted to the supper. And this two-step practice is based on an interpretation of verse 28, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's based on an interpretation there that says you must be able to examine yourself in, in the way that we define that. And also verse 29, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment, not discerning the Lord's body. And so you must be able to discern the Lord's body in a way that they define that. So you must be able to examine and you must be able to discern. And so... Um, Therefore, since children can't examine or discern, these are both intellectual activities, these are both intellectual requirements, since they can't do that, then they can't have access to the Lord's table. Um, and and this, is, this is principally the argument against, uh, the, against inviting baptized children to the Lord's table. And by that same measure, um, the, the mentally handicapped are excluded for life because they can neither examine or discern as they define it. And if they were super consistent, 
the elderly and the infirm ought to be also excluded from the Lord's table when they can no longer think clearly, when they can no longer articulate certain propositions because they can't, they can't examine in the way we define it and they can't discern in the way we define it. And so therefore uh, they should be barred from the table. Is that what Paul's aiming for? In, is he saying, is, is the takeaway from 1 Corinthians 11, actually, I want you to exclude the weakest members of the body of Christ. As, that's actually what I'm after. I want you to exclude certain people uh, from the body of Christ. Let's make sure we're reading this correctly. And by the way, the reason of going over this again, I mean, I know that we're committed as a congregation to uh, welcoming our, our baptized children to the Lord's table, but um, every once in a while you read this and you think, what is this? What do, because I've heard this, but how do we, how do we work through this? And how do, what do we believe about this? So that's why, that's why we do this. Every once in a while we need to refresh um, our, our approach. So let's make sure we're reading this uh, correctly again. The word that Paul uses in verse 28, for examine, let a man examine himself. I don't like to give you a whole bunch of Greek stuff, but I'm just going to do it one time today. The word examine is dokimatsu, which shows up in several places. That word means prove or approve or test. Let a man examine, let a man prove, let a man approve, let a man test himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And Paul uses this word in other places in 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. It's the very same word. The, the fire will approve. The fire will prove each one's work. The fire will prove what kind of work you've done. So that in that case, it's not an internal self-examination. It's not a self-evaluation. It has to do with proving or approving something or someone. Paul uses it again in 1 Corinthians, in the same book. He's using it several times. In 1 Corinthians 16, 3, he says, when I come, whomever you approve, same word, approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So let me know who you approve of, who is trustworthy, who can go uh, take this gift to Jerusalem. So how does this function, this approving or proving or testing, how does this function in the context of the Lord's table? Well, the proof or the approval or the test of Christian behavior at the Lord's table is not necessarily an act of introspection, but it's an open display of unity with respect to the body of Christ. We prove ourselves by how we treat the body of Christ, not by how much we understand or how thoroughly we search our hearts. Self-diagnosis may be involved, but the proof, the test is how we behave toward others in the body of Christ. And here's what's going on here. The, the, the Corinthians are being exclusive. They're being prideful. They're being fractious. They're introducing sectarianism. They are dividing the body of Christ at the point where the Lord Jesus meant to unite them at the table. At the table, they're treating certain members of the body as nothing. This rebuke doesn't have anything to do with their intellectual capacity or their ability to privately meditate on their own sinful condition or to make calculations on the presence of Jesus in the bread and the wine. So, so what about discerning the body? Is that an intellectual exercise where we try to figure out every Lord's Day, um, how exactly is Jesus the bread? How exactly is he the wine? Is that what discerning the body is? In verse 29, um, that, that phrase shows up, they're not discerning the Lord's body. Is that a theological exercise we're supposed to repeat every week at the table? If this were a reference discerning the body, if this were a reference to some intense focus on the elements, then he would say body and blood because 
He always puts them together when he talks about the sacrament. But here he just says, the body of Christ. What body are we supposed to be discerning? It seems best to understand this as a reference to recognizing Christ's body, the church, as we come to the table. Again, this is not some subjective inner reflection that's being called for here, but an objective, concrete matter. How do you treat others in the body of Christ, the church? How do you promote the unity of the body of Christ? Are you reconciled with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? That's how we discern the Lord's body. How are we acting toward the body? You see, we can't pull this instruction on examining and discerning out of the context of the problems of Corinth. This is not some free-floating, timeless instruction about the Lord's Supper that has no con uh, connection to the context. What they needed to prove or approve or examine was their unity to show that they really discern the body of Christ, not the bread, but the church, the body. And we can turn that back around and say those who don't admit children to the table are committing the same error that the church of Corinth was committing. They're not discerning the body. They're not approving themselves with respect to the division that they're working at the Lord's table in barring children, and they ought to examine themselves. In this very same letter, Paul recognizes that every baptized member of the church is holy. That's how he starts the letter. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What do those words mean? Sanctified and saints. He's saying you're holy. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says your children are holy. Later, he says weaker members of the body are to be honored by stronger members of the body. How can you faithfully participate in a sacrament that seals and unifies the body while at the same time excluding the weakest and smallest members of the body? Is the table only for the strong and the educated and the intelligent? Are our children not holy? Are, the, are not all baptized Christians members of the body? And if they are members of the body, are they not one loaf, as he says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. If they're included in the body, admitted to the church by baptism, if they're holy, why are they not invited to the Lord's table? Uh, one more important question that we have to ask is, are all of these stern warnings about disunity and disruption at the Lord's table, are all of these stern warnings directed toward children? Are these typical sins that two-year-olds and five-year-olds engage in? I mean, honestly, if your five-year-old is plotting a coup and planning to overthrow the government of the church, Let's talk. Let's, 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 let's cover that. If, you're, if, you're, if your four-year-old is flagrantly disrupting the unity of the, of the church and profaning the Lord's sacrament by their behavior, then I would say, absolutely, yeah, this, this applies. We need to work this out. But if children are not committing the abuses that Paul is correcting, then there's no basis for excluding them from the Lord's table. And this is why baptized children are invited to come week by week, because I don't want us eating and drinking judgment. I don't want to be guilty of fractiousness, of making divisions in the body of Christ. But we want to invite all who are baptized so that our children grow up knowing that they are essential members of the body, so that we can say to our children, this is where you eat with with Jesus, children, this is where you look around, you discern, this is the body of Christ. See, look around, this is the body of Christ in these men and women, old and young, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. These are the people who are with you in holding forth the body and blood of Jesus, proclaiming the 
death of Jesus on the cross as the only sufficient covering for our sin. You learn week by week, children, little ones, young ones, you learn this, week, this every week that this covering of Jesus' death is for you. His blessings are for you. His death is for you. His body and blood are for you. His forgiveness is for you. His fellowship is for you. We don't keep you at arm's length, but rather, just as Jesus sat a child down in the midst of them, so we agree with Jesus when we look at you and say, this is the kingdom of God. Jesus was never more indignant with his disciples than when they tried to hinder little children from coming to him. What, what makes us think his attitude has changed on that? How much better to welcome his children, remembering that we are all children, that not one of us is more intellectually capable of figuring out the presence of Christ in the elements than another one of us, but rather that we do it, that we do it just as he said to do it, and we receive it with the faith of a child, humbly and without pretense. So does that mean there's no warnings here? No, there are warnings here. There are strong warnings here. But who are they for? It's not children who are genuinely failing to discern the Lord's body, but, but there is a warning here for everyone who holds the church in contempt, for anyone who sows discord among the brethren, for anyone who sets themselves up as the church's accuser rather, rather than siding with the church's lover, the Lord Jesus. That person is eating and drinking judgment. It's the hateful, it's the contentious, it's the status-seeking and the prideful and the arrogant who bring judgment against themselves and against us. And that's the teaching here. So wherever you have that selfish inclination, you need to lay it bare and check your motives and pray for graciousness and pray for patience and pray for forbearance with the body of Christ. Pray for contentment and stop opposing the body of Christ. Don't ever hold the bride of Christ in contempt. Humble yourself as a little child and receive the blessings of the sacrifice of our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this memorial, which we're about to enjoy. We thank you for this memorial of our Savior's death and we hold it before us as people who are in covenant and covered by that sacrifice. And so we ask you to give us your spirit so we never forget this, but to rejoice in it and to rest in it day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.